Hey, pastors, we know you love your clerical shirt because of what it means, but how does it feel? Under all those vestments, is it hot and sticky? Is it too tight, too loose, or just not comfortable? Wicking Vicar has the solution for you. The Performance Clerical Shirt, featuring four-way stretch to let you move and moisture-wicking fabric to keep you cool. Plus, it's machine washable and wrinkle-resistant. Visit wickingvicar.com and treat yourself to more stretch, more movement, and easy care. The Performance Clerical from wickingvicar.com. wickingvicar.com. Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 20 on Good Works. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Congregation in Mason City, Iowa, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Andy Wright. He is pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. Pastor Wright, welcome to Concord Matters. Thanks, Pastor Smith. It's great to be with you here on this day and great to have you as a fellow Iowan here now too with us. Yes, well, thank you. It is good to be here and we're settling into life here in Mason City and uh, look forward to seeing you here pretty soon around district convention uh, coming up here soon for us here in Iowa East. and. Of course, we'll have pastor's conferences coming up and everything too. So it's good to be here and good to be here with you today, especially as we take on another very key article here in the Augsburg Confession, one of those articles that really gets to the heart of what the Reformation was all about and what our Lutheran Confession is. And so we're honored to have you on to talk about this and teach us the theology of what we're confessing here in this article regarding good works here today, Pastor Wright. Uh, so with a lot to get to here today, Let's just go ahead and get to reading the article in its entirety. And it's a longer article here. Again, a very important article central to the Reformation, but we'll just go ahead and read it in its entirety here and then spend the rest of the time discussing it. So a reminder that we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, a publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 20 from the Augsburg Confession on good works. Our teachers are falsely accused of forbidding good works. Their published writings on the Ten Commandments and other similar writings bear witness that they have usefully taught about all estates and duties of life. They have taught well what is pleasing to God in every station and vocation in life. Before now, preachers taught very little about these things. They encouraged only childish and needless works, such as particular holy days, particular fasts, brotherhoods, pilgrimages, services and honor of the saints, the use of rosaries, monasticism, and such things. Since our adversaries have been admonished about these things, they are now unlearning them. They do not preach these unhelpful works as much as they used to. In the past, there was only stunning silence about faith, but now they are beginning to mention it. 
They do not teach that we are justified only by works. They join faith and works together and say that we are justified by faith and works. This teaching is more tolerable than the former one. It can offer more consolation than their old teaching. The doctrine about faith, which ought to be the chief doctrine in the church, has remained unknown for so long. Everyone has to admit that there was the deepest silence in their sermons concerning the righteousness of faith. They only taught about works in the churches. This is why our teachers teach the churches about faith in this way. First, they teach that our works cannot reconcile God to us or merit forgiveness of sins, grace, and justification. We obtain reconciliation only by faith when we believe that we are received into favor for Christ's sake. He alone has been set forth as the mediator and atoning sacrifice, in order that the Father may be reconciled through him. Therefore, whoever believes that he merits grace by works despises the merit and grace of Christ. Citing Galatians 5 verse 4. In so doing, he is seeking a way to God without Christ by human strength, although Christ himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's a quote from John 14, verse 6. This doctrine about faith is presented everywhere by Paul. As he says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. If anyone wants to be tricky and say that we have invented a new interpretation of Paul, this entire matter is supported by the testimony of the fathers. Augustine defends grace and the righteousness of faith in many volumes against the merits of works. Ambrose, in his book, The Calling of the Gentiles, and elsewhere, teaches the same thing. In The Calling of the Gentiles, he says, Redemption by Christ's blood would be worth very little, and God's mercy would not surpass man's works if justification, which is accomplished through grace, were due to prior merits. So justification would not be the free gift from a donor, but the reward due the laborer. Spiritually and inexperienced people despise this teaching. However, God-fearing and anxious consciences find by experience that it brings the greatest consolation. Consciences cannot be set at rest through any works, but only by faith, when they take the sure ground that for Christ's sake they have a gracious God. As Paul teaches in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This whole doctrine must be related to the conflict of the terrified conscience. It cannot be understood apart from that conflict. Therefore, inexperienced and irreverent people have poor judgment in this matter because they dream that Christian righteousness is nothing but civil and philosophical righteousness. Until now, consciences were plagued with the doctrine of works. They did not hear consolation from the gospel. Some people were driven by conscience into the desert and into monasteries, hoping to merit grace by a monastic life. Some people came up with other works to merit grace and make satisfaction for sins. That is why the need was so great for teaching and renewing the doctrine of faith in Christ, so that anxious consciences would not be without consolation, but would know that grace, forgiveness of sins, and justification are received by faith in Christ. People are also warned that the term faith does not mean simply a knowledge of a history such as the ungodly and devil have, citing James 2 verse 19. Rather, it means a faith that believes not merely the history, but also the effect of the history. In other words, it believes this article, the forgiveness of sins. We have grace, righteousness, and forgiveness of sins through Christ. The person who knows that he has a Father who is gracious to him through Christ truly knows God, as it says in John 14, verse 7. He also knows that God cares for him, citing 1 Peter 5, verse 7. And he calls upon God citing Romans 10, verse 13. 
In a word, he is not without God, as are the heathen. For the devils and ungodly are not able to believe this article, the forgiveness of sins. Hence, they hate God as an enemy, citing Romans 8, verse 7, and do not call him, citing Romans 3, verses 11 and 12. I expect no good from him. Augustine also warns his readers about the word faith and teaches that the term is used in the scriptures, not for the knowledge that is in the ungodly, but for the confidence that consoles and encourages the terrified mind. Furthermore, we teach that it is necessary to do good works. This does not mean that we merit grace by doing good works, but because it is God's will, citing Ephesians 2 verse 10. It is only by faith and nothing else that forgiveness of sins is apprehended. The Holy Spirit is received through faith. Hearts are renewed and given new affections, and then they are able to bring forth good works. Ambrose says, Faith is the mother of a good will and doing what is right. Without the Holy Spirit, people are full of ungodly desires. They are too weak to do works that are good in God's sight, citing John 15 verse 5. Besides, they are in the power of the devil who pushes human beings into various sins, ungodly opinions, and open crimes. We see this in the philosophers who, although they tried to live an honest life, could not succeed, but were defiled with many open crimes. Such as human weakness, without faith and without the Holy Spirit, when governed only by human strength. Therefore, it is easy to see that this doctrine is not to be accused of banning good works. Instead, it is to be commended all the more because it shows how we are enabled to do good works. For without faith, human nature cannot in any way do the works of the first or second commandment, citing 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. Without faith, human nature does not call upon God, nor expect anything from him, nor bear the cross, citing Matthew 16 verse 24. Instead, human nature seeks and trusts in human help. So when there is no faith and trust in God, all kinds of lusts and human intentions rule in the heart, citing Genesis 6, verse 5. This is why Christ says in John chapter 15, verse 5, Apart from me you can do nothing. That is why the church sings, Lacking your divine favor, there is nothing in man, nothing in him is harmless. All right, that is the entirety of Article 20 on good works from the Augsburg Confession. All right, Pastor Wright, quite a bit to get into there. So go ahead and get us into, just kind of give us a bird's eye overview of what we just read at length there and give us some of the background and history and things that kind of set up and make this article something that is really quite important to confess and put forward here as the Lutheran confessors do here in the Augsburg Confession. Go ahead, Pastor Wright. Sure, yeah. It's really interesting for us Lutherans to talk about good works because I think at some point we almost maybe instinctively have this reaction to good works don't save us. And that's our first go-to when we are thinking about talking about good works. And that's not wrong. And that's a good thing for us to think about that our good works don't save us, right? We're justified by faith in Christ alone. And the reformers are very clear in that in the Augsburg Confession. I mean, the chief doctrine of the church is justification. But one of the things that is brought up in the very beginning of this article is that we are falsely accused of prohibiting good works. You know, it's, I think, part of the nature of who we are as people that if we say that good works don't save us, then sometimes we maybe want to jump into another ditch of saying then, well, then good works maybe are bad or good works are a hindrance or, you know, insert whatever word you want. And uh, 
There was a guy by the name of John Eck, who you guys have talked about with some of the things dealing with the Augsburg Confession. One of his things and his various 404 articles, he had some different sentences and different things that he took out, and he tried to take different reformers and then try to address different things that he thought were heretical and teaching against what Rome taught. And there were certain instances where even his accusations were not correct, you know, what different things that he quoted. But he tried to pick a few things, especially like things on against works and on merits, where he tried to attribute to the Lutherans and saying, not only do the Lutherans say that good works don't play a part in your salvation, but they actually prohibit them. They're saying we're actually against good works because they're not playing a part in our justification. So from the get-go, Melanchthon makes that clear in the initial statement. Our people are falsely accused of prohibiting good works. And then he goes into that statement that, you know, you read a few minutes ago. But when we look at then the writings of the teachers and we think about Martin Luther, for instance, we think about in 1520, he had a whole treatise on good works or even in the catechisms. You can't help but read the catechisms, especially in like the large catechism on the Ten Commandments. And we see how God teaches us about the Christian life is a life of good works in service towards our neighbor. So it's just a false accusation that has been thrown against the Lutheran Church. Even to this day, sometimes we still see that. And then the minute you start bringing up teaching about good works, it's then you get accused of being a legalist or whatever the case may be. Now, that's not always the case, but, you know, that being point. So that's kind of a little bit of a background as we kind of get into this whole discussion. So now then setting that aside and saying, okay, we don't prohibit good works. Good works don't play a part of our salvation. So where does that all fit in? How do we understand good works? How do we talk about good works? And what do we have to say about them? So Article 20 comes into play here as almost kind of a supplement to Article 4 and Article 6. So Article 4 is the article on justification and Article 6 is the article on the new, new obedience. And so this is kind of even further clarification on how this all fits together. And I guess I, sh I should mention too, sometimes we call this article on good works but if you kind of look at some of the original titles to this, it's on faith and good works. So faith is even mentioned in this as well. And Langton gets into that. So this article does talk a lot about what faith is and what faith isn't. So how does then this all fit together? Well, Luther, after the publishing of the Augsburg Confession and in kind of response to a lot of the aftermath in it, he gave a commentary on the alleged imperial edict that was a response to kind of a lot of what was going on. Think about even with the confutation and stuff. And this was in 1531. So kind of jumping ahead to kind of get us back in. So this is what Luther said in 1531. Luther said, they disparage us as those who reject good works, although they indeed know better. We lay more emphasis on good works than the whole papacy has ever done. For it has never understood any good work, as I have sufficiently proved elsewhere. They simply cannot give up their venomous lying and slandering. So, laying more emphasis on good works, how does that happen? Well, Melanchthon goes into then and in talking about how this article, our starting point is how does justification relate to good works? So, justification by faith alone does not interfere with good works, but rather, as he explains in this article, it makes them possible. And in that way, we understand good works are really extolled among us because we are extolling justification, which produces good works as a fruit of faith. Um, the reader's edition of the Book of Concord has the stanza from Salvation Unto Us Has Come right in the notes above it, where it quotes that 
for faith alone can justify work, serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. So kind of orienting those as a fruit of justification and understanding the heart of the matter of justification, producing those things actually extols good works into a way that honors Christ and it honors that new life that we have. So the beginning paragraphs of this article, he lays out some of those false notions then. And starting in like paragraph four, he says, our opponents also no longer praise such unnecessarily works as highly as they once did. And then in five, moreover, they have also learned to speak now of faith about which they did not preach at in former times. Where they now teach that we do not become righteous before God by works alone, but they add faith in Christ, saying that faith and works makes us righteous before God. Such talk may offer little more comfort than teaching that one should rely on works alone. So the purpose in all of this, too, of extolling good works and placing them in their proper place and actually commending us to good works is a very pastoral and practical thing as well. Because when we understand justification and how our good works flow from our justification and lead us back then to us being declared righteous on account of Christ, there's going to be great consolation in that. And you're going to have this love for God that understands that everything is completely and totally dependent upon what our Lord Jesus has done for us. And the minute you start mixing faith and good works together is the minute that you rob people of consolation. You rob them of that comfort that Christ has won for us by his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. So I think that's a a really kind of a a key thing at first that they lay out in that as they lay out why this issue is at hand, why the false teaching is really destructive to us and our lives in Christ. So that's where he goes in now then to this discussion about faith. So starting in paragraph eight, he says, because at present the teaching concerning faith, which is the principal part of the Christian life, has not been emphasized for such a long time As all must admit, but only a doctrine of works was preached elsewhere, our people have taught as follows. In the first place, our works cannot reconcile us with God or obtain grace. Instead, this happens through faith alone when a person believes that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, who alone is the mediator to reconcile the Father. Now all who imagine that they can accomplish this by works and can merit grace despise Christ and seek their own way to God contrary to the gospel. Now, that statement is an interesting statement because one of the things that John Eck accused the Lutherans of was actually, you know, kind of dishonoring Christ by saying that faith and works don't play a part together. So in his 404 articles, he doesn't necessarily attribute this right to Luther, but he does make this statement that he quotes from, you know, the Reformers, saying that our works are meritorious, distracts from Christ, honor, and merit. So in John Eck's mind, that the way that The Lutherans were talking about, you know, we don't want to steal away from the merit of Christ when we mix faith and works. But in his mind, when you mix the two together, merit is not something that is attributed only to Christ, but then that merit is added to it. And so for us then to really emphasize that in that paragraph about how with the consolation with that and 10, now all who imagine that they can accomplish the works and can merit grace despises Christ and seek their own way to God contrary to the gospel. In some ways, Eck was right of what the Lutherans were saying, but what the purpose was that is for the consolation of us that we know that it rests solely in Christ. So it's really hitting home that point of understanding faith and works as not being mixed together, but these two issues that one produces the other really kind of gets to the heart and the meat of what this Good Works article begins with and as it starts to flow into. Yeah, I think you said it well there that the focus on this issue is that faith produces the good works. 
I mean, of course, that's often said, good works don't save us. That's kind of what we're known for as Lutherans, right? And that's true, but it's really it's kind of short of the issue, right? So I often like to say, I wish that more than just saying good works don't save us, that we'd be known for as Lutherans for saying good works proceed from faith, which we do say, and is especially it's in our Lutheran hymnody. But it's kind of not the first thought that we have when it comes to what Lutherans think about good works, right? But it really should be because, as you pointed out, for us as Lutherans, everything relates back to Article 4 on justification as the heart of our doctrine. And that's something that they're particularly focused here in this article for how we rightly understand good works. And so I'm kind of struck by just the way that they begin this. I mean, they basically say, well, obviously we're not against good works. I mean, you can't look at the catechism and say that Lutherans don't talk about or preach good works. I mean... They say we teach the Ten Commandments and our other similar writings bear witness that we usefully teach about the estates and duties of life. And they say that they have taught well what is pleasing to God in every station and vocation in life. I see the table of duties kind of echoed there or in the back of their minds. You know, that these godly and scripture-directed good works are taught by Lutherans. It's in our writings. You can go check it out and see. And they compare that to sort of the contrived good works that the Roman church has been teaching, which are not directed by scripture as God pleasing, you know, they, they're kind of childish and silly, they say, but more importantly, they emphasize that there was only stunning silence about faith. And that's the main point, because even if the good works that are being taught aren't specifically directed by scripture, and some of them may be fine and good, but the worst part is that the works aren't proceeding from faith. So really, they're not good works at all. And there's no consolation for the conscience in such teaching about good works. I think this is the tension that is still played out in the church and the Christian life today as well. We see it all over the place. The right relationship of faith to good works and how it's taught and understood in the church. And so as that's kind of the main focus that they're going at here, especially right at the start, as we start to get a little bit deeper here into this article, and what we're confessing here, get us into this understanding of the relationship of what are truly good Christian works as they proceed from faith. Yeah, that's a that's an important thing. Um, it, he kind of gets to this even more towards the end here. I'll jump ahead to parts 29 through 34 of this article when he talks about what God makes us to be. So our justification, we think about the the new life that the Holy Spirit has given to us through faith. And it says the heart is also moved to do good works for because it lacks the Holy Spirit, the heart is too weak. Moreover, it is in the power of the devil who drives our poor human nature to many sins. So then he says, this is what happens to human beings when they're separated from truth, faith are without the Holy Spirit and govern themselves through their own human strength alone. You know, one of the things that's kind of an, an interest of mine, I did my STM thesis on this and then I'm doing PhD work is this understanding of like the place of the law in our life. But when you think about like the formula of Concord, for instance, which when it talks about like the third use of the law, the law is going to always accuse us in our old sinful nature. But God also teaches us what good works look like, because kind of like you said, there's those contrived works that we will want to try to make and say these things are good. Right. We especially our old sinful man wants to have works that we think are good, even if God doesn't say that they're good. But when the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, when he creates and when we're justified in Christ. For us to listen to God and to have that produce a new life and what God teaches us what is truly good, then those good works will follow from that, from the gospel. So even here in the Oxford Confession, they're dealing with some of that stuff. 
some of those issues that would later come up in Lutheranism. And then two, that this, uh, you know, going back then towards the beginning of this, this teaching too is, is not something that's a new teaching. I mean, it was really interesting too how they'll reference St. Augustine, they reference Ambrose in different places, you know, and about how this idea that faith produces good works and not faith in good works justifies is not something that is the Lutherans just pulled out of thin air and said, you know what, let's just try this and see, let's go with it, right? And so, I mean, they're not standing on church history or not looking at church history in the, in the how the church fathers have spoken in this way. Now, it's not always the case, but the point being, this is not a new doctrine. Like the Augsburg Confession is a Catholic doctrine. It's, it's a continuation of the faith that's been handed down to us. But this consolation then that comes from this, and so not these contrived works, but these good works that, come from a justified person, he goes in like, um, just looking at, oh, 15 here. Now, although untested people despise this teaching completely, it is nevertheless the case that it is very comforting and beneficial for timid and terrified consciences, where the conscience cannot find rest and peace through works, but by faith alone. When it concludes on its own with certainty that it has a gracious God for Christ's sake, as Paul says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. In former times, people did not emphasize this comfort, but instead drove the poor consciences to their own works. As a result, all sort of works were undertaken. Um, And then he goes into like monasteries and things like that. And so, you know, it's really an interesting thing to think about that, about how good works, when we really start to appreciate what place they do have in the Christian life, about how much consolation and comfort that it points us back to Christ. I don't know if I'm making sense with that, but like the minute we start taking confidence in our good works for their own sake or are contrived for that, you know, it's easy for us to look at even when we've done something good in this life and say, boy, that makes me feel good. I mean, we're taught that, right? It's better to do something nice for somebody or those kind of things. And those are all good and well. But for us to understand why am I doing something good or why am I delighting even in this? It's because look at who has redeemed me and look at the consolation that I have and that as good as that may be of what I've done and what I maybe will be doing, you know, as a Christian, it brings me back to where's my identity found? It's found in the one who has died for me, has made me righteous. And then, and then that produces all the more these good works and, you know, this new life in Christ. It's just kind of a, an interesting thing that they bring up and they, we talk about, you know, our place and how we think about these in our lives. Yeah, as you were talking there, especially about how this produces the new life in Christ in us. I think that's key also. And we, and we need to address this too, because while we as Lutherans focus on the fact that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone on account of Christ alone and not because of the good works. And we don't want to focus on the works for our hope. At the same time, we don't want to fall off onto what Eck was accusing the Lutherans of and ignore that God does command good works. I mean, scripture tells us that God wants me to serve my neighbor, that God wants me to be faithful in my work and being a good faithful pastor even, right? And so part of the issue that we have to address here, I think, is that God does command good works, right? I mean, that's how his word produces this in us. Yeah, that's a good question too, that, you know, that we actually talk about God commanding us good works. We think about his law commanding us, you know, good works. We think about even too, even that that notion of the command to bear fruits and keeping with repentance. I mean, we talk about that with the new obedience. But Article 20, we'll even talk about it's God's will that we do good works. 
And I think that's quite a compelling thing too, as well. Not only does God command it, which it still would be his will if he commands it, but that language of God wills us to do good works. And, you know, later in the formula of Concord, they would have this discussion, you know, about kind of the language that they used in terms of like good works being necessary, you know, and how that kind of came about. But I think that's a helpful thing as we think about this topic of good works as Christians, people who are justified and people who do have a new life in Christ, that God wills for my life to produce and have good works. And that's what this whole relationship between faith and good works kind of comes back to that too, that God is not holding our sin against us, but we have the righteousness of faith so that God wills good works now for his righteous people and that he actually commends us for it too. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we can make both of those statements and still say that good works play no part in our salvation. It may sound like as a tension at first, but to be able to know that our good works do not save us, but yet also it's God's will for us to do good works and good works are a necessary part of the Christian life. And God actually will commend us for our good works. All of those statements are true statements. So then to properly understand where faith fits into that and then to see good works as God's will and living according to God's will is kind of going back to the beginning part of our conversation where we're holding them actually in a higher regard. You know, we're really extolling good works in this of being this great Christian virtuous thing in our lives that God has given to us and that we live as his new people, his new creations who have been called by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be free to live in this new life in Christ. And that ties in, I think, with what you already pointed to a little bit, but I want to pick up a little more on the other side of the break. And that's how this right teaching on good works is a matter of the consolation of the conscience. You know, that as we look at God's law, the Ten Commandments, and all our Christian duties in life that Scripture says I am to keep, and that I don't fulfill these good works as I ought, or that as James says, faith without works is dead, and I begin to wonder if works are evident in my life at all. Well, if works is preached apart from faith, that is terrifying to the conscience and probably produces the things we see in the Middle Ages with purgatory and indulgences and so forth. But if we preach that good works are necessary, as Scripture teaches, but that good works proceed from faith, then we find that this is a consoling doctrine and produces genuinely good works. So we'll pick up with that on the other side of our break as we continue talking about Article 20 from the Augsburg Confession with our guest today, Pastor Andy Wright. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. The life of the Christian church is a life in exile. We are grieved by various trials. False teachers and their deceptive teachings wage war against the truth. How can we believe and live as faithful and joyful Christians while we sojourn here? This is Pastor Timothy Apple, host of Sharper Iron. We're starting a new series, The Imperishable Inheritance. We will be going through 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. Join us every weekday morning at 8 on KFUO to rejoice in the imperishable inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking about Article 20 on Good Works from the Augsburg Confession today with our guest, Pastor Andy Wright. He is pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Keystone, Iowa. And of course, good works, as we we're talking about here today, was one of those issues at the heart of the issues at the time of the Reformation. And as this article directs our attention right from the start here, at the heart of the issue of good works is the very heart of all Christian doctrine which is justification by faith, which produces the truly good works. 
And Pastor Wright, in talking about this just before the break there, you were leading us to this point that is made very specifically here in this article, which is that when this is taught rightly, this is a consoling doctrine. And that's something that we've tried to make the point of on this show quite a lot, actually. Actually, we did a whole episode on it with Pastor Brady Finnern, who actually we want to share congratulations to him. He's a good friend of the show and myself personally, and also host of another show here on KFUO. Uh, but he was just elected Minnesota North District President here a few weeks ago, about a month ago, actually. And so we congratulate him and pray God's blessings upon him and his family as he begins his service to the church's district president. But uh, anyway, he did an excellent episode for us talking about why Concord matters for the care of souls. And that was oh, a couple of years ago now, and you can go back into the archives and, and listen to that. I definitely commend that to you because this is a point that we really want to make about our Lutheran confessions that every single article, and especially this one on good works, is a matter of pastoral concern for the care of souls. I mean, you know, the Augsburg Confession and the confessions in the Book of Concord in general are not just confessing the truth of our faith for the sake of having the right academic statements of what God's Word teaches, and it's not just what the Reformers were upset with, with the Roman Catholics, and they just wanted to show how they're wrong and that we're right. It's nothing like that, obviously. Rather, these confessions, in fact, the whole Reformation, were born out of a pastoral concern that what the Roman Catholics were teaching, especially about good works, is not according to Scripture, and thus leads people astray from the true consolation of faith and the gospel. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that for us, of how we should look at this confession of good works in their right relationship to faith, and thus for the consolation of consciences, as the article talks about here. So go ahead, Pastor Wright. Sure. Yeah, that important point, um, getting to the heart of the matter, this is Melanchthon again in this article. He makes kind of this statement leading us back into it. He says, for the conscience cannot find rest and peace through works, but by faith alone. And when it concludes on its own with certainty that it is a gracious God for Christ's sake, as Paul says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he goes on just a few sentences earlier. For the consciences forced some into monasteries, that is this false teaching of good works, or that somehow our good works play a part in our salvation, in the hope of obtaining grace there through monastic life. Some devised other works as a way of earning grace and making satisfaction for sins. Many of them discovered that a person could not obtain peace by such means. That is why it became necessary to preach this teaching concerning faith in Christ and diligently to emphasize it so that each person may know that God's grace is grasped by faith alone without merit. So our conscience is always, the old sinful man has this opinion of the law that he's always going to want to try to justify himself. We know that. And when you have this understanding that faith and works are mixed together in your justification or in your salvation, then you're always going to try to find some way of answering your conscience. Like, how do you know for certain? How do you know and have peace, you know, where you stand before God and that you will have eternal life? So for some people, this was, you know, they tried to find peace, which ended up being a false peace and going into monasteries or whatever the case may be. But to have that free conscience and a conscience that is set free, knowing that it's solely for the sake of Christ, is a very freeing thing. It's so freeing. Um, I lead a confessions Bible study with a men's group here at the congregation I serve, and we've done it for oh, a long time. <laughs> we meet early in the morning. And um, we recently were talking about repentance. We're in the small card articles now, and we were talking about repentance and what it is to have 
you know, the absolution, that understanding of being forgiven solely for the sake of Christ and not having to make satisfaction or, or you know, all of these different things like that. And Melanchthon, his point is really, it's well taken for us to understand the place of the conscience with good works, of being at peace and rest, knowing that our works are not going to be that which we find our salvation or the certainty of our salvation. Because at the end of the day, even the best works that we do in this life, we could have done it better. So our faith is going to rest solely in the merits of Christ alone. But that consolation is such a key thing. And in pastoral care, I mean, you come across it different ways all the time of what it means to, to have a conscience at peace solely for the sake of Christ. Of course, you don't have to give any specifics here, but could you give some examples of what you mean there by how this comes up in pastoral care? Because, uh, of course, you know, we have a lot more that we want to talk about and other points we want to make here with good works. But as I had set up here in the second half, this is a big point that we really want to emphasize with our Lutheran confessions and especially with this article. So if you have some general examples of how this comes up in pastoral care, I think that will also help us make one of the other points that we want to make, which is for how our confession on good works does still matter today. Do you have any kind of general examples of how we might see this come up today? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And sometimes it's not so much of a clear way as like, you know, oh, pastor, I'm trusting in my good works for my salvation, right? Hardly anybody ever says that. I've had somebody come close to kind of saying that before. Maybe they didn't say it in those words, you know, but you'll hear people often say, you know, well, I'm a pretty good person or I'm, you know, or, or I pray. I think that's I think that's where we kind of contrive good works into a way of viewing our our faith. You you talk to somebody maybe who hasn't been to church in a while. Well, I pray, Pastor. I'm OK. You know, right. Well, that's my good work that is somehow going to merit my forgiveness. But you talk to people maybe like even like elderly people who have been Christian people their whole life and they maybe are nearing death or something like that. And for all intents and purposes, you look at this person, you say, man, this person is just a great example of the faith. They're a great example of, you know, a Christian father and mother. And you, right, could say, could commend them for the good works that they did for their neighbor in this life. And then they start to sit and they contemplate what it means that they're approaching death. And the devil has this way of saying, you remember those times when you didn't do this or those times when you could have been there with your kids more, but instead you chose to do this or are those kind of things like that. Um, it's easy for us to want to try to go down that route of good works and our conscience will find a way then to try to, it will never be at rest because at the minute it starts to try to kind of zone in and focus its thing on that, the devil will and our sinful flesh will have to find a way to show us that you're never going to be, have any consolation of your salvation in those things. So you, you as a pastor, you, you talk to people like that. And just out of nowhere, sometimes you'll hear the things like, you know, they'll be telling you about their, you know, raising their kids in the faith and taking them to church and doing all these things like that. But then they think, but, but you know, pastor, I, I should have done this or I, I could have done that. And you can tell that their conscience is thinking about those things that they either failed to do or could have done better. Right. And so then to point them back to Christ and to see, hey, those were good things that you were doing that Christ gave you to do as a Christian father or mother. But you know what? The Lord has forgiven your sins and he's the one who has given you eternal life to kind of sometimes it's just a matter of like kind of like reorienting ourselves back to, hey, 
let's take the focus back onto Christ. So I think that's kind of a, a common example. I don't know if you've come across that where you see those kind of things like that, especially like some of the, the elderly people as they think about and look back maybe retrospectively on their life where you find this, where our conscience can kind of not be at rest or have this consolation when it starts thinking about good works, but then to kind of look back to wait a minute, where is my righteousness found? Yeah, I think those are good examples. You know, as you were talking there, I was thinking kind of the the way I think about this is kind of you have two the tension between the two sides of this, as you often do, right? I mean, it's basically how we apply law and gospel here, right? So you kind of have the two ditches that you can fall off into. So you have the ones who are kind of secure in their good works or their perceived good works. You often see this come up at funerals a lot, right? You know, that people want to have all the good things the person did talked about. And you can look at obituaries, even for a lot of professing Christians. And what do you see dominating that? But front and center, all the good things that they did and what they were a part of and things. And I'm sure you've experienced this as a pastor too. Sometimes the family and things will really pressure us as pastors and expect us to talk about how great they thought this person was and kind of expect that that's what should be front and center of the Christian funeral. Not at all, right? I mean, of course, we're not going to do that. Christ is the only hope in life and in death, right? That's what we profess. And no matter how good a person they were, they still weren't good enough to overcome death. But Christ has. So Christ is what's front and center of the Christian funeral. And we can commend some things done in faith and may bring in or point to some various biblical good works that they did in their life that proceeded from their lives, lived in faith. I mean, if you look at some of Martin Luther's funeral sermons we have, you can see he would do this like sometimes he may take the death of a beloved father and he'll use the example of how that father taught the faith to his children and brought them to church and how those are holy works in the vocation of fatherhood. And then Luther will use that to launch into talking about how this father was a reflection of our heavenly father. And so the focus is obviously on the very heart of our Christian faith. It's Christ and how all the things that we do, these holy works given in scripture are produced from faith. And so in that way, it's how we rightly talk about the saints too, right? Which we'll talk more about in the next article, article 21. And so it's not like we can't or won't talk about good works at all, but only as proceeding from faith because, and that's another way you'll kind of see it on this side too, right? is, you know, you'll get parents who will come and try to give you excuses for why they can't make it to church. And by the way, I think it's interesting that you can just tell their conscience is accusing them because that's the only reason they're coming to tell you their excuse, right? Because if their conscience wasn't accusing them, they just wouldn't bother giving an excuse, right? They, they just wouldn't show up and wouldn't care. And you see some of that too, but they'll come and say, oh, well, you know, I have to work. And, you know, the Bible says it's important that I provide for my family. Or they'll say, I need to spend time with my family. And you know, pastor, God says that that's important too. And I'll say, well, yeah, but that's the commandment that comes after the first three, right? And so, yeah, sometimes in pastoral care, you kind of have to remind them, you know, your good works won't save you, right? I mean, whether it's the funeral where you have to remind the family that their loved one isn't in heaven because of their good works. We kind of had a whole reformation on this deal, right? Or the people who are trying to use the fact that they have these good works that scripture tells us to do. You know, sometimes you have to call them to repentance, right? But then the other side, I think, is you can sometimes see this with parents again or with business owners or just, you know, people who really value, I think rightly so, their work and doing a good job in whatever vocation they have. Sometimes they'll just get overwhelmed with the good works that they are called to do. You know, God's law, the law in general, requires so much of us. It's never done, right? That's the famous Luther phrase. The law says do this and it's never done. 
And so I think sometimes we just get overwhelmed by that. We love God. We love his word. And so we strive to be faithful. But I so often see just how we get overwhelmed by that. And again, I see this a lot with parents. And maybe it's because I'm a parent myself, and especially with toddlers, which is when parents really tend to think about it. Because, you know, when the kids get older, you're like, oh, whatever. (laughs) They'll turn out however they turn out. But, uh, you know, parents, when children are young, they just want to do the best they can. And so you'll spend so much time. Oh, I want to do this right. And I want to do this or that or so that they'll really turn out right. But you just can't do it all. And it seems like everything you're trying so hard to do just doesn't work or is falling apart for you. And so I think we just get overwhelmed by that, by trying to do something that we believe rightly so that God has given us to do as a good work and that his law is good and produces happiness, but it's just not working or is really hard or seems impossible. And again, in pastoral care, I just see this in so many ways. Sometimes even it's what we try to do as pastors in the church, right? And we just get overwhelmed by it or our lay people in trying to serve at their church, trying to do the right things. These are good works, but it's just overwhelming. And so that's where I think we need the consolation of this. That's where with parents, when, as you say, pastor, right, the devil and their conscience is accusing them and they think, oh, they could have done this or that better or whatever. That's why it is important to remind them, hey, look, this child belongs to Christ and you belong to him and he loves you and will care for you both. And remember that you doing this perfectly is one, impossible in this sin broken world. And two, wouldn't be all that good for you anyway, because you wouldn't see how much you need Christ. And that's the importance of emphasizing the faith in relation to these good works, because it's the only place that we have any comfort for the good works that we are given to do. Otherwise, it's nothing but striving for something we'll never do. It's just chasing after the wind, as Ecclesiastes says. But what an absolutely beautiful and comforting thing when we receive the means of God's grace to us that forgives us for our failings, which strengthens our faith for good works, right? I mean, that's basically what we pray in the common post-communion collect, that he has refreshed us through this salutary gift, and we implore you that of your mercy, you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you and in fervent love toward one another right? That our faith would be strengthened in God and that so that we can go love others, that we can do good works. That's basically what we're praying. And so, you know, when grounded in the faith and the means of grace to strengthen our faith, we actually will see good works produced in us all the more, as we've already kind of talked about. But we see this is also where the article goes, that it says the person who knows that he has a father who is gracious to him through Christ truly knows God. He also knows that God cares for him and he calls upon God. And so we see as our faith is strengthened, we actually call upon God all the more to give us strength for these good works. And so get us into some of that here, Pastor Wright, about you know, how they accent, why it is so important that we have a right understanding and grounding in faith in order to produce these good works. Yeah. Melanchthon brings up, um, so after that statement about grasp by faith alone without merit, he makes this statement and kind of referring to, we think of, uh, you know, kind of an allusion to James 2.19. We must also explain that we're not talking here about the faith possessed by the devil and the ungodly, who also believe the story that Christ suffered and was raised from the dead. But we're talking about true faith, which believes that we obtain grace and forgiveness of sin through Christ. And so he goes on and say, all who know that in Christ they have a gracious God, call upon him and are not like the heathen without God. For the devil and the ungodly do not believe this article about the forgiveness of sin. That is why they are enemies of God, cannot call upon him, and cannot hope for anything good from him. Moreover, as now has been indicated, Scripture talks about faith but does not label it knowledge such as the devil, 
and ungodly have. For Hebrews 11.1 teaches that faith is not only a matter of historical knowledge, but a matter of having confidence in God to receive his promise. Augustine also reminds us that we should understand the word faith in Scripture to mean confidence in God, that God is gracious to us, and not merely such knowledge of these stories as the devils have. So, you know, just using the word faith, too, I mean, and maybe this is, too, where we see this kind of nowadays as well, that faith is something that, you know, it's not just some nebulous thing as well. You know, when you talk about strengthening your faith and you were talking about, you know, how that desiring to take the Lord's Supper and to to be hearing God's word. And and Luther talks about faith being a living, active thing, that this isn't just some head knowledge or just faith in some general sense, like a George Michael song of, you know, like you got to have faith. Right. But this is a, a living confidence, a trust in Christ, in his merit that knows that this is for me. And so the kind of the flip that Melanchthon gets into here on this side is it's it's not just this idea of faith that even the demons believe and they shudder, right? But it's that confidence that he's talking about, that saving faith that produces the good works. And it makes us different than the heathen and the devils that have no saving knowledge of God. So the good works are going to flow from that saving faith. That's what is going to produce those good works because it has that new life in Christ that the Holy Spirit has worked in us. And I think maybe that's kind of a, a thing that we see common too. kind of, you know, we were talking about the consolation that we have, but in some ways then maybe this is another aspect of where in pastoral care, when it's so rampant nowadays that you think of like apathy or just kind of this, you know, well, I don't need these things. I, I'm spiritual and not religious or, you know, insert whatever catchphrase of the day it is like that. And then that's when we will then try to contrive our own new good works or we'll try to, you know, redefine all of these different terms that Melanchthon has been trying to use here. But to get back to the core of understanding what good works rightly are, you have to understand what faith is rightly, that confidence and that trust that God has given to us that clings to Jesus and his merit solely and completely, not just some head knowledge of there's this Jesus guy and he was real. Yeah, that he actually died for my sins because I am a sinner. And that's what makes me cling to Jesus for my salvation. That's my consolation, right? So I think you're right to accent as they do here, that it's not just a knowledge thing because, and I think this is why we have some of the issues that we see so prevalent in our society that has just so much hatred towards God. It's not that they don't know him, right? If they truly didn't believe in him, they wouldn't care, but they can't deny their creator. Their conscience accuses them. So it's really that they don't know him as their gracious savior. They don't have the consolation. That's what they say here. Hence, they hate God. And so they're unable to do good works. And they also say here about how, uh, you know, they're in the power of the devil who pushes human beings into various sins, ungodly opinions, and open crimes. And they also say, and I think this is interesting, we see this in the philosophers who, although they tried to live an honest life, could not succeed, but were defiled with many open crimes. I would say we see this happens by people who would call themselves Christians today, right? That they may acknowledge that there's a God and they say they believe in him, but their church doesn't teach about sin and they don't proclaim Jesus as their savior from sin. And the focus of the work of the church isn't there. Instead, they just teach that being Christian is being good or doing nice things or being involved in social justice causes or whatever. And so it just becomes these things that I have to do. That's what the church is about for them. Okay, well, if that's where my faith is directed, when there are a whole lot of other things that seem more important to me 
than actually coming and receiving what God has given to us, then we can't produce these good works and essentially hate God and the good work that he has called good. And they'll come up with their own ideas of what some good works are that will somehow appease God and make it look like we're doing what we're supposed to do, but are actually open crimes. And that's where we see this with so many other denominations, unfaithful denominations out there that are promoting the most evil, wicked things as being good works. I mean, just not long ago, we had the ELCA, the bishop of the ELCA, giving the blessing of her church body to abortion and saying that the church will stand up for that. How dare she? I mean, that's evil. That's wicked. Calling the murder of infants what the church should be supporting. That's just disgusting. They're calling evil good. I mean, it's exactly what scripture says will happen by the false teachers. That church body has long ago abandoned the word of God, and so they're making abortion their good work. That they're going to be loving in that way, they say, but it isn't loving. It's encouraging people in the way that leads to their destruction. Real love is bringing actual consolation, real forgiveness for sins. That's why I think this right confession of this matters so much. Because apart from the genuine faith of real sin and a real savior, and that being our consolation, then we get into a whole mess of things, whether it's the innocent sort of things of, well, God says it's important to care for my family, and so I'm going to be out there with them, you know, enjoying a good weekend at the lake instead of coming to church and all those sorts of things, or just the really terrible, wicked things that are promoted by some church bodies and calling those things good works. Either way, the end result is we're just trying to save ourselves and find our comfort in our own contrived works which doesn't give any true consolation, ultimately is hatred of God and his word and what he's called good and a denial of the faith with no hope of salvation. Did you want to reflect on that at all, Pastor Wright? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And kind of a, a thing that's been working through all of this too is kind of going back to that old Lutheran proper distinction of law and gospel too. And Melanchthon is really has that kind of underpinning all of this in when he talked about at the beginning of like what the role of good works is how that relates to justification and now in this discussion about faith and kind of then how he picks up on that too when we understand when we call evil good and good evil you know faith by its very nature is a thing of humility too it's a beggar receiving what christ gives and we gladly hear god's word we gladly delight in what he would say to us and for us to realize that everything rests solely and completely upon the lord and what he's done for us and then to have that new life in Christ is to actually desire and listen to what he teaches about what good works will look like too. You know, so if God calls murdering babies evil, then that's evil. And if, you know, tells us to help and support our neighbor and his physical need, then we delight in that as a new creature in Christ, our new man delights in those things. And we see that for the good work that it is, you know, to help and serve our neighbor. But yeah, I, I think that's spot on. So this idea then of faith of just being just this knowledge that doesn't want to actually listen, you know, to have the confidence in God is to actually listen to him too and to be in that word and see to it the word of God dwells in us richly. But uh, I think that's really helpful for us as we think about what it means to confess this faith in the world today, you know, about understanding what a living faith looks like and what it delights in and where it keeps coming back to, keeps coming back to the word of God and both law and gospel. Absolutely. And I think what you hit on there about faith requiring a sense of humility, that helps us with those really thorny things that do make us different than the world around us. And just living distinctive from the world around us and how we think about our vocations, how we structure our lives as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers, how we regard life and marriage and family. 
how we act as employees and employers and the importance of gathering together as the church for the word and sacraments. When those things come at odds with our lives and this sinful world, there's kind of two moves for us there, right? Or two responses. There's the response of humility that says, well, God calls this good and that evil. And so I'm going to humbly submit myself to his truth to guide and form and shape me. Even if I'm personally greatly struggling with that and wrestling with that, my sin broken mind would maybe rather live a different way or a way that the world promotes and says is okay. No, we submit ourselves to the word of God in humility and trust what he says is good. The other response is what we see again and again in scripture and is pushed by the unbelieving world, of course, but even sadly again by too many other denominations and churches that would claim that they're Christians. And that response is that they start to twist the text of scripture and in essence try to force scripture to submit to them and their authority. I mean, it's interesting that one such thing being promoted in our culture and celebrated by churches that call themselves Christian, one denomination that even calls itself Lutheran, right? What are they celebrating? Pride Month. I mean, that's a fitting name, quite the opposite of humility. And there will be several other interesting contemporary examples I enjoy getting into and discussing with you on that, especially in relation to how our culture pushes so much right now for acceptance and tolerance as basically being the good work of our culture right now. But unfortunately, I'll just kind of have to leave it hanging there because as usual for me, I have to say that while there's so much more that we could get into and would love to discuss with you, we need to wrap up here today. But before we go with about a minute here, I want you to give us your parting thoughts here on this article on good works, its importance for our confession still today, and how it sets up what's coming next in the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, I think, you know, how kind of just on a couple of things, when we look at the whole of the confessions, this article on good works is so much about justification, which is what, you know, everything is about, the chief doctrine, the, the doctrine by which the church stands and falls. So we can see kind of then this article could kind of maybe be summed up and as it relates to the rest of the Augsburg Confession and then as the whole of the Confession, that justification by faith alone does not interfere with good works. Rather, it alone makes them possible. And so being justified by faith in Christ, we have a new life and that new life is lived and it does these good works. So as we think about these things and as it even then as it relates to kind of the next article which the next article is concerning the cult of the saints we understand you know who we are as righteous people in the sight of god and what it means then that we have the righteousness of christ and how we can approach him in things like prayer and who our mediator is it really it brings that consolation of to be a child of god and to be one who trust solely and completely on the merit of Christ and what that entails, not only in terms of our salvation, and but what that in terms of, even as we live in this world in relation to God and in relation to one another, as people who have been set apart, who have been called by the gospel and sanctified to be new people in Christ now and even into eternity. Absolutely. And a great connection to that next article, which we will look at next week, which is Article 21 from the Augsburg Confession on the Worship of Saints. For today, thank you to Pastor Andy Wright for joining us here on Concord Matters and teaching us this Lutheran confession of good works from Article 20 in the Augsburg Confession. It's been a great pleasure having you join us today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. And I also want to say thank you to our new underwriter for Concord Matters, Wicking Vicar, makers of the Performance Clerical Shirt. I'm honored to have their support for Concord Matters here on KFO Radio. They make a great product. I've actually enjoyed their shirts for about the last year or so. I've won them on today. I definitely commend it to you, Pastor Ryder, 
any of our brother pastors out there, for our great lay listeners, they'd make a great gift for your pastor. You can visit wickingvicar.com to learn more. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>